0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Father, I thank you that you love to speak light into our hearts. I thank you that as we abide in your word, you reveal truth to us and it's that truth that sets us free. So, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you are open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear, open our minds to understand, open our hearts to believe uh, what we would see and hear today from your word. You promise that your word never returns void, but as rain comes down to the earth, produces produce, that your word comes into our hearts and bears fruit and always accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And so, Lord, we cling to that promise this morning. We look expectantly at your word. Pray that you would move this morning for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have come to the end of the B-team preachers. Your sojourn with the B-team is almost over. Uh, The A-team is coming back next week. Uh, So uh, the task I've been given this morning is to talk About the attribute of truth, God's truthfulness. Uh, And Grudem defines God's truthfulness. He says it means this God's truthfulness means that He is the true God and that all His knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. It's a great definition. And as I thought about that definition and thought about that God is the true God and every word that he speaks is truth, a question kept haunting me. It was, why does that matter? Why does it matter that God is the true God? Why does it matter that he is the ultimate source and substance of truth? And as I was thinking about that question and what it meant on my life, on the street level of my life, as Paul Tripp would say, I stumbled across... John eight verses thirty one through thirty two where we will be spending our time this morning and john eight thirty one through thirty two says this: "If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus provided a pretty clear answer to my question, Why does it matter? Truth matters. Because it is the means of our liberation. It is the means by which we are made free. And so that's really the whole sermon. In a nutshell, if you get nothing else here, that as we abide in God's word, we know the truth, and the truth sets us free. I'm going to try to say that a hundred different ways, uh, but that's in essence the only thing I'm saying this morning. We're going to try to look at that truth uh, from two different perspectives. One, how do we know truth? And then how does truth change us? How do we know truth? And then how does that truth actually concretely on the street level of our life change us? So how do we know truth? Look at verse 31 again. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. So the first thing that we see here is a very exclusive claim by Jesus. He's saying... To the extent you abide in my word, you will know truth. But the converse is also true. To the extent you do not abide in my, truth, in my word, you will not know truth. So if the only way we're going to know truth is to abide in his word, we better answer two questions. We better know two things. One, what is Jesus referring to when he says my word? And two, how do we abide? What is my word? What does that mean in verse 31? And then how do we abide? So what does he mean by my word? Well, surely it means every word that Jesus said while he was on earth. He was an actual man who said actual words while he was with people uh, on this earth. But it means more than that, right? Because Jesus is God. So when Jesus said my word, he said God's word, which is every word, chapter, verse, book in our Bible. So every word in the scriptures Second uh, Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's God spoke through human authors and spoke through every word, verse, chapter, book in our Bibles. Second uh, Peter 1.21 makes the same point and says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So every word, every verse, every chapter, every book of our Bibles, all 66 of them are God speaking to us. And John Piper made this point. He was on a panel with a bunch of kind of young buck preachers who hadn't really yet made their way like John Piper had. And the moderator asked the question, uh, how do you guys hear from God? And these Young pastors were given all these profound answers about how they would fast for three days and then walk by a quiet stream for five hours and then sit and cross their legs and meditate, and then they would hear God speak. <clears throat> all of them, different iterations of that kind of same theme. They got to John Piper in his typical way. He said, guys, I, just, I have to stop this. He said, if you want to hear God speak, here's what you do. You get your Bible, you open it, and then you start reading. Uh, That's God speaking to you. And indeed, that's right. So when Jesus said, my word, he refers to every word, every verse, every chapter, every book in our Bible. So in that sense, my word in verse 831 is quite broad. But I want to make a bigger point that it also has a narrow meaning. And what I mean by that is John Piper sums it up. He said, when you take all the words in the Bible together... They have one great sum. So if you add up Genesis, plus Exodus, plus Leviticus, plus Numbers, plus all the rest of the books, I'm going to get tripped up. But if you add all the books together, they have one great sum, and that's Jesus Christ himself. If you were with us when we went through the Gospel of John, I think pretty much nearly every Sunday we went to John 20, verse 30 and 31, and rightfully so, where the, where the apostle John tells us why in the world he bothered to write the gospel of John. And he says this, John 20, verse 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. So John's saying, why did I bother to write the gospel of John? It wasn't just to write down words. It was to speak of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the whole point of the gospel of John is Jesus Christ. But we see that it's not only true about the gospel of John. We see in, the, in Luke 24, somebody came up to me after the service and said, you said five different verses were your favorite verses. So, you know, which ones? But this is one of my favorites, Luke 24 uh, verse 27, this is after Jesus has raised from the dead uh, and the disciples are trying to, the news is getting to them. They're not quite realizing what's going on. And Jesus uh, met up with these two guys who are walking on their way to Emmaus. They're on the road to Emmaus. And uh, the Ap- Luke tells us what happened on this walk. They got the best hermeneutics class that has ever been taught, the study of the Bible. He says this, beginning with Moses... And the prophets, he, and that's Jesus, <clears throat> interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't know about you, but that would have been a pretty cool walk to be on, where Jesus is walking with these guys and saying, okay, see Genesis 3.15? He said the offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. Yeah, that pointed to me. I fulfilled that. You see all the promises made in the Abrahamic covenant? yet yeah, all those pointed to me, and I fulfilled them. And on And on and on. It had to be thrilling. But all the scriptures point to and are fulfilled by Christ. And then later in Luke 24, verse 44 through 45, Jesus met up with some more disciples and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And there, the Old Testament was divided into three sections the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, and then the writings, the psalms of which was the first. So Jesus is saying, all of this pointed to and is fulfilled by me. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. All of the Bible, every word in the Bible points to and is fulfilled by Christ. And this is the point of the rebuke in John 539. John 539, Jesus is talking to a bunch of really legitimate Bible readers. I mean, these guys knew their stuff. They had committed chunks of the Bible to memory. They knew their Bible better than all of us in this room ever will combined. And this is what Jesus had to say to them, John 5, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. In other words, we don't open this book just to read words. We open this book to hear the God of the book talk to us. We open this book to encounter personally the God of all creation who's speaking to us through this book. Words on a page won't cut it. An encounter with the God of all creation is what we're after and what Jesus was saying. So putting this all together, remember we're asking a simple question, what does my word mean? In John eight thirty one? and I've argued that it means broadly every word in the scriptures as they point to and are fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So that when we get to John 15 and Jesus says, abide in me, he's not saying anything different than abide in my word. Okay, so that's my word. So how do we abide? Well, in one sense, to abide, is pretty simple. It just means to remain or to stay or to persevere. But there's so much in the word abide. You know, in the song we sang, abide in me, never let go, don't ever let me leave, don't leave, stay close, abide in me. There's a lot to that word that more than we can say through words. And so Jesus gives us a picture in John 15. John 15 So abide means to be like a branch who is completely depending upon its vine for all of its life and all of its vitality. So to abide in God's word or to abide in Jesus means for us to totally depend upon Christ for all of our life, all of our vitality, all of our identity, all of our meaning, all of our purpose, all of our hope. And I've come to simply believe at least it's proven itself out in my life that we cannot do this without spending a lot of our lives in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. Piper says this, If you want to know Jesus, be much in His Word. One of the most important convictions I've developed is that Jesus, as a real, living, precious, present, experienced friend and person, is known chiefly through His Word. Piper says the converse, he says, if you try to run after the Lord without running through the Bible, you will find someone else. Now, I'm not trying to guilt everyone to change your alarm clock for 15 minutes so you can spend 15 minutes in the Word before you go to work. That's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to present the beauty of the Scripture so 15 minutes seems like a moment. And if it's true that every word in the Scripture is God, the God of all creation, talking to us as creatures who He loves... Then it's true what Piper said, the Bible is is more valuable than anything we own, sweeter than anything we've ever eaten, and reading the Bible is literally more important than breathing. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 could say all these things, in the way of your testimonies I delight as much in all riches, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselor's. Your statutes have been my songs. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil the psalmist got it in Psalm 119. And to the extent we share that view of the scriptures, spending time in the word and hearing from God will be not a chore, but a pleasure. So to abide or to remain in Jesus is to hour by hour look to Jesus in every word that he has spoken for our life, hope, joy, peace, meaning, and vitality. It's to totally depend on, on his saving and enabling grace to live the lives so we've been called to live, to do the tasks that he has put before us, to turn away from the sin that would only do us harm, and to turn to God in worship and surrender. So, we know truth, and to the extent we know truth, it sets us free, and we can only know truth as we abide in his word. But what difference does this truth that we come to know as we abide in his word make in us. Let's look again at John 8:31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then down in verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free, free indeed. Quite simply, the truth changes us by bringing about liberation and bringing freedom. Jesus, the substance of truth, frees us. And there's two aspects of this freedom. A lot of times we think about one and not the other, but there's two aspects of the freedom that Christ gives to us or has purchased for us, secured for us. We're freed from certain things and we're freed for certain things. So we're both freed from and freed for. Okay, a lot of times we think about what we're freed from and kind of stop to think about what we're freed for. So we're going to try to do both this morning. And this isn't exhaustive. Just, you know, start with what we started this morning and continue on in your quiet times. But freed from. So three things I'm going to focus on. We're freed from blindness to our bondage. Freed from the penalty of our sin and freed from a futile struggle, freed from blindness, penalty, and futility. And then I'm gonna. We're gonna talk about being freed too. We're freed to walk in obedience. Or we're freed to bear fruit. And we're freed to put on the easy yoke of Jesus. Freed from. Freed to. So freed from blindness to our own bondage. We see this in the passage we're in in uh, John eight thirty three. Jesus has just offered them. Hey, I'm going to set you free. You'll know the truth. I'll set you free. And this is how his audience responds They answered him We're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Just just get this. The God of all creation has just offered them, hey, I'm going to set you free, free from everything that does you harm, set you free to have the abundant life you were created for. And instead of saying, thank you, that sounds awesome, they say they're offended. How can you say we need to be free? We're not enslaved. Milne characterizes their response this way in his commentary on John. Jesus' claim to set them free carries the negative implication that prior to the response to Jesus, they had been in bondage. That's the offensive part. This is, they proceed to contrast, to contest sharply. They desire Jesus's gift of life as an additional adornment to the moral and spiritual status they presume to possess already. But Christ can never be had as an addition to our natural attainments a part Savior who complements our personal achievements. He is the Savior only of the desperate who have nowhere else to turn and on other no one else to call. He's the Savior only of the desperate who have nowhere else to turn and no other on which to call. But before we criticize this group of people for being so dumb, that they couldn't see their own blindness. We have to admit that we share in their same blindness. To one degree or another, in one area of our life or another, we all share the blindness. Now, it's easy to see sin in other people's lives, right? I mean, the, the alcoholic, you, you confront them and they say, I'm not a pro- I am don't have a problem. I can stop at any time that I want to stop or anybody else who has a blatant path of sin where they're destroying everything in their life, every relationship in their life. And they're the only person who can't see it. And you're just, you're in awe how they can be so blind, but it's the same. We have the same issue, right? We all have blind spots. And the problem with the blind spot is we can't see it because, well, it's a blind spot, right? (laughs) And so uh, for a lot of us who are, have been in the kind of evangelical, churchy bubble for a while, we, we know better than to do the blatant sins. I mean, we struggle with blatant sins and all that stuff. But where we found our comfort zone, our blind zones kind of get bigger because there are these what Jerry Bridges called refined sins or acceptable sins or um, sins that are okay. He, he defines these types of sins like this. These are the sins of nice people, sins that we can regularly commit and still retain our positions of elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, and yes, even full-time Christian workers. Okay, do you guys want the list? You don't want the list. Get ready. I'm going to give you a little bit of the list, okay? I'm not trying to inflict pain for pain's sake, uh, but just go with me. So here are some acceptable or refined sins, a judgmental attitude, a critical spirit, gossip, resentment, bitterness, an unforgiving spirit, impatience, irritability. Okay, the list goes on and on, but I think I probably covered most of the uh, audience out here. Um, Okay, so And the point is, uh, you know, I was going through this book. Jerry Bridges actually has a whole book on respectable sins if you want to inflict more and detailed pain upon yourself. Uh, But I was going through a book with a bunch of guys in here uh, called The Disciplines of Grace, and it had a chapter on respectable sins. And as we went through that chapter, we were just getting beat up uh, with a new, a fresh realization of how pervasive a sin was in our life in ways that we really hadn't called out sin before. And that Jesus was doing to us exactly what he was doing to the Jewish people in John 8. He's saying, you think you're a little further along than you actually are. Let me reveal your blind spots. And it's painful, but it's liberating. The first way Jesus liberates us is he exposes the bondage. He exposes the sin. And uh, the way, so whether we're on the blatant sin spectrum or the refined sin spectrum, the problem's the same. We can't see it. And so Jesus in his typical fashion and all this blindness just gets the biggest light that he can and just shines it right in their face with verse 34. Look at verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, it's hard really to overstate how offensive this must have been to this audience. Remember, these are like the seminary students, right? These are like the senior pastors. These are like the really really like religious people who had the long robes, who knew all the impressive prayers, who had portions of scripture memorized. And they come up to Jesus and he says, you guys don't get it. You're enslaved. You're in bondage because your religion without me doesn't break any chain. You're still in your bondage and in your sin. And the message of the scripture is the same for all of us. Before the work of Christ is applied to us, we are all in bondage to sin. Before Christ, death substitutes for the death we deserve. Before we are credited with His perfect gift of righteousness. We are all in bondage to sin. This came true to me. Uh, you know, I, I think I became a believer about sophomore, junior year in college, and this was a big point for me to get. Uh, and actually, it wasn't Jesus through John eight. It was Bob Dylan. Uh, who, who got through to me? I wasn't really opening my Bible much during that time, so a Dylan tune had to do. Um, and the only reason I was listening to Dylan is because I had a Jeep Wrangler at the time, which is the best car in the entire world, but my driving record was such that the insurance premiums on that particular car were a little exceeded the threshold that was acceptable to my parents. So I was driving my dad's car. Dad liked Dylan. So I'm driving from my, these are all gratuitous facts, I'm sorry. But it's second service, so you guys get it. So I'm driving from campus to my apartment. Dylan is on. And I don't know if you guys know the song, Gotta Serve Somebody. Yeah. Can, I, can I get a witness? <laughs> All right, so so I'm in the car, and I'm listening to Bob Dylan, Gotta Serve Somebody. And if you d- if you don't know the song, like any Dylan tune, it has way too many words, right? I mean, it's got like 10 verses. And the chorus is repeated like 50 times. He's not going to let you get away without getting the main point of the song. And so really all the verses are doing is saying it really doesn't matter what status you have in this life. You could be an ambassador. You can be a pauper. You can struggle with really bad stuff. You can be a preacher struggling with spiritual pride. doesn't matter. Everybody is in the same boat. And the boat and the point was made through the chorus where he says this. I'm not going to say it like Dylan. (laughs) Uh, But Dylan says this, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And I had the same reaction that the Jewish people had in verse 33. And I said, how dare Bob Dylan tell me? a 19-year-old college guy who's doing whatever the heck I want to do, that I want to serve somebody. I'm not going to serve anybody. I don't want to serve the Lord. That's boring. And I don't want to serve the devil, clearly, because he's freaky. I just want to do what I want to do, live the life I want to live, and there's going to be no consequences to that. But by God's grace, finally I moved from Dylan to actually John 8, uh, and people uh, led me into the truth that, in fact, Dylan was saying the exact same thing that Jesus is saying, that you're going to serve somebody. Before you come to Jesus, you're in bondage to sin. And I had to see that before I could see anything else. So the first way Jesus brings about liberation is he exposes our bondage. But he doesn't just shine a light on it. He paid the penalty for it. Look in Colossians two, thirteen through fourteen Colossians two thirteen through fourteen And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love this passage because I'm a lawyer, okay? We learned through this series that God is a holy God, infinitely holy, perfect, glorious, matchless beyond anything our limited minds can comprehend. And what happens when you rebel against an infinitely holy and infinitely righteous God is that you incur an infinite debt. So it's like you go to the bank and you say, Hey, I want a line of credit for a bazillion, gillion, whatever dollars. And the bank gives you, for whatever reason, this line of credit, and now you have what's called a promissory note. And that note evidences this infinite debt that now you owe, that if left to your resources, you could never, ever repay. But what Jesus did on the cross, look at the verse again. He canceled this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, evidencing the amount that we owed, how this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's good news. That means it doesn't matter what you've done before this moment. It doesn't matter how shameful your life has been to this point. Believe me, I have plenty of shameful things. It doesn't matter what regret you bring in this room. It just doesn't matter where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Matt Chandler says it this way. We've got this weird compartmentalization thing that happens where you don't think that God sees all that you are. Or that if he could or somehow knew who you were going to be, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Listen, God knew you're going to be messy. Christ knew you're going to be messy. God knows that you're going to mess up often. He knows that you're going to be drawn to things that are wicked. He knows. He knows. That's what the cross is all about. That's the whole point of the cross is that you're going to fail and you're going to stumble and you're going to feel dirty and you're going to feel awkward. The whole point of the cross is that there be this mighty picture of his love in pursuit of you despite you. So the cross is necessary because of you, but it's also the picture we have of just how far God is willing to go because he loves you. This is as good as gospel truth gets. It doesn't matter what you bring into this room. Christ can take it all this morning. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, one, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. That's why he can say towards the end of Romans 8, skipping around, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus frees us by revealing our bondage to us and then by fully paying the debt that results from our sin and our bondage. But not only that, he frees us from the futile struggle. Timothy Keller has noted that the transition from being not a Christian to being a Christian is not so much a transition from battle to peace as it is a transition from a battle you cannot win to a battle you cannot lose. Becoming a Christian is transitioning from a battle you cannot win to a battle you cannot lose. What do I mean by that? Well, before you come to Christ, as Jesus said, you're in bondage to sin with no hope of freedom, with no hope of liberation. But once the work of Christ is applied to us by grace through faith, now we're entered into a place where we no longer struggle. Okay, thank you. There's laughter. There's some believers in the room. The struggle remains, okay? Paul talks about this in Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. No, we still struggle. And the struggle is heightened now because we've got the spirit of God in us, and we've got our flesh in us, and they're doing battle, and we'll do battle until... We breathe our last breath on this side of eternity. But it's not a battle that we can't win. It's a battle we can't lose. Why? Because of Galatians 5.24. Look at Galatians 5.24. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is to say, our passions and desires have already been defeated. They still rear up their ugly head and do war against the spirit but they've already been defeated. Our victory is sure. So while we will do battle, there is no question the end of the battle is victory for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord will finish the work that he started in us. He will conquer these passions and desires. So Jesus frees us from our blindness. He frees us from penalty. He frees us from futility, but he also frees us for. He frees us for he frees us to walk in obedience and to bear fruit. Turn again to Galatians five, verses thirteen through fourteen. Galatians five, thirteen through fourteen. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what happens as the work of Christ by grace through faith is applied to us. Now we're in the unique position of having seen the depths of our sin. So we're no longer in a position to really be impressed with ourselves. We've also been we've also seen that Christ through his substitutionary death has taken the penalty that we deserve and every now every breath that we have is a gift of grace. And so now we're freed from every thought, word, and deed in our life being centered on ourselves and our small kingdom and our small purposes and our small will. And now we can look beyond ourselves because the love that has been poured out to us through the work of Christ to live our lives in sacrificial love and service for others. We're freed through the work of Christ to live for others, to pour out our lives for his glory and their good. We're freed through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to live lives marked imperfectly but unmistakably by his fruit, his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, his self-control coming out of us as we abide in his word and as the truth becomes part of us and as that truth sets us free. We will, by definition, serve others, and bear the fruit of the Spirit. John, the author of the Gospel of John, says in his epistle, 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him, that's whoever says he abides in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you walked like Jesus this week? I did not. Um, But I think what he's saying here is not that we have to walk in the perfection that Jesus walked. But I think what he's saying here is that we are supposed to be on the same road. We're supposed to have the same heart desires. We're supposed to have the same trajectory of our life. We're going to fall down a lot. Jesus never did. We're going to fall down a lot. But through the power of the Spirit, we can be on the same road that Jesus was on, following in his steps by his grace. So, as we abide in his word and come to know the truth, we are freed to live lives of obedience and fruitfulness, but also we are free to put on the yoke of Jesus. And this is our final point. And I, I said in first service, somebody came up to me. I said, Matthew 28, 28 through 30. If you look for that reference, you will be frustrated because there is no such thing as Matthew 28, 28 through 30. So we've got to use the second tape, David. It's Matthew 11, 28 through 30. That's what happens when you write the sermon at 3 in the morning. Um, the, Matthew says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Tim Keller has helpfully said that freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but the presence of the right restrictions. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but the presence of the right restrictions. And the right restrictions, the restrictions that we were all made for is the yoke of Jesus Christ that is easy and his burden is light. We sang before we came up here, there is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. The chain or the yoke of slavery to sin is broken as we take the yoke of Jesus Christ, our Savior, upon ourselves. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. There are lots of things that promise freedom in this world. If you just search Spotify for the word freedom, you would be shocked the various artists that have songs that either have the name freedom in them or not. Do not listen to all of them. It is not an encouraging devotional experience. Um, But there are a lot of definitions, a lot of understandings of what freedom is. But true freedom is only found as we put on the yoke of Jesus, for his yoke is easy.